Welcome to the Communicate for Good podcast, where leaders on a mission to make the world a better place come to talk and learn about how communication, language, and words can help increase awareness, revenue, and impact with less stress and more joy. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and I'm so excited you're here with me. Let's dive right in. Welcome, welcome to the Communicate for Good podcast. I'm Erica Barnhart, your host. It is a bright, beautiful, sunshiny day here in Seattle. For those of you in other parts of the country, you may be wondering why I'm mentioning that. For us in Seattle, this is like a watershed moment. (laughs) And I am excited to be joined on this bright, beautiful, sunshiny day by Jen Pope. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jen. And then, as always, I'll invite you, Jen, to give kind of the, the color commentary, how did you do all of these things version of your bio. But in a nutshell, Jen is an executive and leadership coach for startup leaders. She has a background as VP of marketing for multiple high-growth companies, and that's what gives her the knowledge and expertise to understand the complexity of startup leadership. She likes data and evidence-based tools, a woman after my own heart, that accelerate growth and scale, both in terms of individual and collective leadership. Jen is a self-kindness and mental health advocate. She is passionate about creating safe spaces for women and non-neurotypical leaders in startup and corporate leadership. Clients will tell you that Jen provides systems and habits to improve life and leadership. I love that because I think sometimes we try to separate the two, which that would be lovely if we could, but life isn't tidy in that way. So I appreciate you just being like, we're doing all the things, the two L's, life and leadership. (laughs) Her clients love the sharp insights structure, compassion, and accountability that come from her coaching process. She has clients that include Tenable, Oracle, Altana.ai, Tomboy X, DocuSign, Blue Jacketeer, and Uplevel. When she's not working, you can find her cooing over her dogs. She just did have to do a little doggy management before we got rolling here. Running in the hills of the Pacific Northwest, there are many, many, many hills, and singing all the songs that play in her local grocery store and CVS. Welcome to the show, Jen Hope. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So many of those things are making me giggle to myself over here in all of their real death. <laughs> yes. Yes. Fair, fair. So I always think it's interesting to ask folks, like, what drew you to marketing? How did you end up doing all these really amazing things? And then I want to, and, and then I want to get right into the self-kindness and mental health advocate and how you bring that into your work, but why marketing? I started working in marketing while I was in college. Um, And so there was a early, early organization that I worked for that did what became, now we call like Google ads, paid search before Google existed. And so very much dating myself on that. But the the world of of someone out there in the world may hear this and know Commission Junction, which was a place where we used to trade uh, users for pennies to get them to travel websites and booking the very early days of travel online and clients like like Fairmont um, and some of those properties that were looking to get folks to their websites in the early, early days of the internet. And so that's where I started. And it was fascinating to me. It was fascinating the way that we were building businesses. And I quickly, with a little bit of push from my dad, who told me that I would never be satisfied with the salary that I would make in psychology. Thumbs up, thumbs down, dad. Like, oh, right. But look where I, look where I ended back up. Um, so kind of perfect. 
but then went went into the world of marketing and really got passionate about about business and how businesses grow and how they scale and 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 so here we are. And what so you were in-house for some period of time, but now yes. you are independent. How long have you been on your own? A decade. So 10 years this year uh, and I was in both the agency world and then in-house as a BPM marketing for 16 17 years. Congratulations on making it to a decade. Thank you. Yeah, big deal. Really I know. I'm I'm at 19 years. It's not for the faint of heart. I think it takes a special type to like keep thinking this is fun. <laughs> it's the, definitely the longest role I've ever had, right? Yeah. 10 years in the same job is bananas to me. To, you know, I think my tenure was about four and a half, five before that. So now 10, a decade. I mean, I'm curious if this is true for you, and this is mainly for listeners who are independent or dip their toe. I think the reason that it's been sustainable for me is because, yes, it is one tight, it's one title, it's sort of one organizational container, but it's allowed me to do a lot of different things. When you're your own boss, you can be like, well, that sounds like a great idea. Let's create the word of fire. Let's do that. So it allows for a lot of creativity, which, you know, offsets some of the tougher, <laughs> tougher things about being independent. For sure. I love that. I love that I can add new education. I love that I can add products and services. I love that I can partner with organizations that I think, you know, um, are, are well aligned and, and bring that, that newness and, and the new skills that I, I, I'm, I have a level learning anyway. And so bringing that and adding that to what I get to bring to other organizations, to clients, that just, that's like the, the perfect world. So let's talk a bit about your self-kindness and mental health advocate. How did that enter your orbit? Two parts. One, I had, my, I had and have my own journey with mental health, and I've experienced anxiety and depression since I was a very young person and grew up in the 80s and 90s where that wasn't a topic that was in many homes. It wasn't a topic in books. It wasn't a topic in the professional world. It wasn't something that we thought anywhere. It was really super quiet and, and quite shameful. Mm-hmm. And when I started to understand more about what it looks like to have mental health, uh, I, I had a very deep, passionate urge to blow the blow the roof off that a little bit and talk about it because particularly as a young person, suffering, is that the right word? In pain, you know, alone. Mm-hmm. I felt like with some of the worst was the worst of it, right? Where where this was happening and and didn't have that experience to go through with others. And that's a that's in no way saying that my parents didn't do what they could with what they had, right? Or the the system that was around me, I think, was doing the very best that it could with what it had at the time. I think we can do better. And a really pivotal point for me in my own mental health journey, and I see this time and time again with others in professional, in professional and personal growth, where when we can start to shift our narrative about that internal conversation, things really change. And it's the combination of the two. It's why there's both in, in my bio, right? Where where we can be kind to ourselves about the fact that there is suffering. Things really start to change. And that that moment, both for me and to many folks that I've worked with, I've seen start a whole evolution of waking up day to day and saying like, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing. I am as I am. I am great as I am. I am okay as I am. I am wonderful as I am. I am doing my very, very best, even if it's not my best human moment, and I can do better. And that whole shift changed my life, quite quite honestly, totally changed my life and changed 
everything for the positive where I could look at any of my faults, many of my faults, and see them as doing the best that I I can in the moment, even if, you know, I know that I can do better. I'm curious to the extent that you're willing to share, like, was there a person or who introduced you to this idea of being like, just so kind to yourself? Yeah, I'll tell you, it was so uncomfortable. I had a therapist at the time who would share with me that when she would be extremely kind to me, I would shut her down. I would be like, I was so grossed out by it. Like, don't be sweet. Don't be tender. I don't want any part of this. Like, it, like, don't, it, I really, I think they, like, a, it was a bunch of like a, like a backfire kind of thing where, where someone was really tender to me. I didn't really know what to do with it. And I had to learn a lot from her modeling. So she gave me a great example at one point about how she would wake up in the morning. And I still, to this day, like, I'm like, mm, kind of skeptical about this. She would throw her arms around herself in the morning and say, Good morning, honey. I hope you have a wonderful day today. I just love you so much. And I mean, the sounded bananas. In my mind, I was like, what are you even talking about here, lady? The truth of the matter is that practice and seeing it in action and being able to use it on difficult days and difficult moments, you know, with my own kid, with my partner, with my clients, with the people around me, it creates a baseline that really changed everything for me. So I, I, I have to give it, give it to her. Yeah. You know, you have to come up with your own way that feels authentic and comfortable. Like, you know, self, a self hug, maybe like not anybody's some listeners jam, but I, I, you know, and if you're, if you're research inclined, Aaron Neff's work around self-compassion is so profound. It's so powerful. It's very evidence-based and mirror work, you know, looking in the mirror being like, and again, it's whatever your words are. Look at you, tough day, but you're here and you're doing like whatever the narrative, like, what would you say? It sounds so cliche, but really what would you say to your best friend and say it to yourself? And it, it just seems like it would not work. And all the evidence supports both, you know, personally, anecdotally. And then there's just a whack of research at this point. It's like, no, no, there's, it's a thing. And at the beginning of our conversation, I, I, I glibly joked about like people want to keep leadership separate from life. And so um, when I work with leaders, if I'm seeing this behavior, which you talked about, maybe not quite as extreme as at the beginning, but this deflection of kindness, deflection of witnessing things that they ought to be proud of, we're going to talk about self-worth and self-esteem and how that plays into and how it shows up in professional spaces, because it does. I have a episode that was called The Secret Life of Self-Talk. Um, where we go into this, right? Because we think of communication in terms of the words that others hear, but so much of it is going on in our head all the time. So it shows up whether we we want it to or not. So one of the things that you were interested in and that it sounds like you work with leaders on is listening more. And I'm curious, actually, for me, there is an initial stage of listening to yourself. And what you're saying, and then I'm guessing that you that you you were speaking more broadly, but I'm curious if you if we might segue and have you speak to that, and then speak more broadly about why is why is listening, especially now, such an important leadership skill. Yeah, listening is a really critical element of self awareness, right? They're really like hand in hand, and I'm sure you talk about this, but that starting point 
where listening is about what we're saying and how we're behaving and how that's impacting and affecting others, right? And this is one of those areas where I really have folks think about some of the assessment tools to get a sense because we live in the jar, right? The label's on the outside. I'm not a fan of labels. For the metaphor perspective, we're in the jar, the label's on the outside. It's really hard to read what others are experiencing. And so being, you know, as you mentioned earlier, being like a bit of a data nerd, I go to, hey, let's gather some information for also to speak a bit to my background. It's a bit of like market research (laughs) and go and gather like, hey, what is this brand? And to go get some information from our customers. Hey, there's a tool called DISC. That'll tell us how people experience our behavior. That's listening. I use a tool called the 360, where a leadership circle 360, where we go and gather information and use their sound bites, right? We get qualitative, we get quantitative information, more listening. And we're building a that model for ourselves internally that says, here's what are here's what others are experiencing. And then building that internal narrative as well that says, hey, this, this experience on the outside may be what it is. And I have the internal skills to cope with all of the potentially triggering feelings that come with, I've gathered this feedback, right? So we kind of do this twofold world where, hey, I can, I can manage myself. I can have the compassion. I can have the kindness. I can have that experience. I can have the emotion regulation tools to say, I can go gather information, listen to people's feedback about me, and then I can go gather some, some qualitative and quantitative information and sit with that and do a bit of a, a market study from as step one for building self-awareness. Have you found that there are, have you ever had clients where they just, they weren't in a culture that, because it's, that's quite a vulnerable oh place to put yourself, right? Like, what do you think of me? So I feel like there has to be a culture to support that level of vulnerability. And I'm curious if you also noticed that and or if you've had an instance where somebody was like, hard pass, not going to do it because it'll be used against me. Because I heard that. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I have other folks where things are very private. Folks come to me outside of their organization. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quite often, I find that, that some of the folks that I will that will be willing to go deepest with me are seeking coaching outside of their yeah, work. Yeah, I have the same experience. They can find that that level of trust. As far as the 360 or, or any of that information, you know, using a tool like this, this is behavior data. And it gets almost like self-awareness or listening 101. Like we start there and we collect the information and we can go and look at it and say, oh, this is, it's, it's, um, we can look at it in a, in a neutral way. Mm-hmm. Like this is how I do what I do. And folks feel less personal. When we get to the 360, I think that's where folks start to say like the big gulp or the like kicking it down the road can happen sometimes. And you know, if I could give folks a tiny bit of peek behind the curtain on that, it is never as painful as folks think it might be. And this is where that negativity bias shows up. And if I could tell folks like, you know, quite honestly, people are often blown away by how wonderful people think they are. And it is vulnerable. And I will say there are environments where I wouldn't recommend it. Certainly. Right. And and however, to add on, we do have the option to go survey folks who you don't work with today. Mm-hmm. So if today's today's environment is not necessarily the one that says, hey, this is going to be the most supportive for my future self, then let's connect with peers or folks who worked for you or managers from years past mm-hmm. where you know those folks really mm-hmm. were invested in mm-hmm. the work that you're doing and would be willing to give you the candid, caring version of the feedback that you really want. Yeah. So, yeah, I 
to teach at the University of Washington. And so we get student evaluations. <laughs> I taught for 16 years. Like I'm not new to the student eval experience, but every single time, like, I mean, it's like clockwork and the negativity bias is so fierce, right? So I like have a practice now that I do in advance of reading them to try to neutralize that because what what I end up doing, and I know I am not alone in this because I've had chats with colleagues, you know, you like scan it and there can be like 12, I mean, I love this class. Da, da, da. And like, I always, I love my students because they always offer like, you know, future years might benefit from. So actionable things. What am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on the one person who said something negative or just cut, I did a webinar you know, there's one, I, literally, there's dozens of positive comments. Where do I go? The very one at the bottom that said, well, she uses a lot of filler statements and blah, 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 like cr was critiquing my communication style and then said it undermined my credibility as a communication expert. And I was like, oh, I consider that to be approachable. It's hilarious, right? Like what my mind went right to this one comment. And then I had to do my little practice, which I had, didn't do in advance of opening the spreadsheet. That's on me. And I'm like, I'm not for everybody. I am pistachio. I'm not the vanilla ice cream. I am pistachio. Maybe you don't like pistachio. You know, going to bless and release you. But negativity bias is real, you know? And I think, yeah. As leaders and listeners think about maybe opening themselves up to more of this, like what what's on the outside of the jar, just being you know being aware of it and going back to your commitment to self kindness, mm -hmm. having a little, a little chat with yourself. I'm going. I think the biggest too about when you think about that feedback. One of the things that I sometimes think about is that if I don't know, it is affecting me. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't know, it's still having an effect. There's still impact, and so. Some degree, tell me. And again, like I get to decide. Like I'm not for everyone. That's so right. that feedback, right? Like that feedback. I'm I'm the kind of person where I might drop a little f bomb into a conversation when I feel like the person could handle it. Right? That may not be for everyone. Right? And and that's okay. Like I I, I consider that again. That's part of my realness. That's the part of that's to me is a, it makes it approachable in a specific moment in a private conversation. Right? And if that, I think what what we find is we can get closer with a handful of people, right? We can connect with a certain number of people and it's not going to be 100%. I'm with you though. I have the same thing, right? I have a business that's run on feedback from customers, reviews, social media recommendations, right? It's, it is a bit of like, we sit and wonder like, oh my gosh, I'm, what am I on the verge of? It really is a risk in being a business owner and independent. A corporate, it really doesn't matter. Like we all have a vulnerability to this feedback, particularly social media and so many other things, parts of the world that we live in right now. It's very, it really is a part of the, the professional experience. And, and I get it. I go through it too, right? We all do to some degree. Yeah. Yep. We all do. So you switch gears a little bit. Well, we're going to stick with leadership and communication, but you have three common core leadership habits that limit effective communication. And I'm curious what they are. What are these Control. three habits? Controlling, mm -hmm. protecting, and complying. Okay. What does it mean? What does it mean, right? So controlling, I think we know what that feels like. If I could give somebody an example of holding onto a rope 
and doing everything we can to keep that rope in our grip, that is controlling. And that can look like lots of different things in our environment. It can look like kind of a distant nature, right? It can look like a critical way that we work with others. It can look like drive and ambition on overdrive, right? It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a way that we can keep ourselves safe by being in control of all the balls that are in the air, right? I think folks who know this, they know it well. I feel like we need to air quote, you know, keep control of all the balls in the air because good luck. Yeah. Do you remember that Wii? I don't know. I might, again, I might, there was an early, early Wii game, like Wii Nintendo game, uh-huh. where you were trying to cover the holes on a dam that was breaking. And I have my arms and my legs stretching out every way like octopus arms right now. It's that every single hole on the dam breaking is what we're trying to do with control, right? And inevitably not going to happen, right? There's going to be a tiny, a tiny leak. That's the control. And then we've got like a bit of that protecting. And that's where we're playing way back from a distance. Mm. I am going to appear aloof. Folks are going to not really know where I stand on a given topic. This is, this is a little bit more of like, I'm going to play from behind a wall. Mm -hmm. I might throw shots over. But it's it's not going to be clear to folks like what my authentic opinion is. I'm not going to use. It may feel a little bit like what's going on with the integrity there. Do they walk their walk? Do they talk their talk? That kind of vibe. And then we have complying. This is pleasing. This is doing everything that we can to make the situation feel smooth, regardless of how it impacts us. Right. And at its very core, this is for you, people pleasers. Yeah, and it's passive, which, you know, there's a bunch of data that suggests that passive is is the the trait that really gets most in the way of our leadership effectiveness. Hmm. That, right? Interesting, right? Isn't that well, well, where my mind went in is, because we were just talking about listening, and I think sometimes listening can look like being passive. Mm. So I'm curious how, how, how leaders can hold those two things. And maybe it's naming it, which I'm a massive fan of. Like, you know, I'm hearing you, I'm listening, I'm creating space for this. I don't know. I'm curious what you what you would suggest on that. I think passive suggests that we don't own the power that we have. Mm-hmm. Less like passive listening versus that active listening. Those I totally agree with you that those can look like I'm pausing with information. Yeah. I think the suggestion would be our passivity actually gets in the way of us achieving results. Yeah. Right? Where we don't do what we can to be visionary, to be strategic, to take those steps forward. Because we're really over here sometimes, I don't know if you've seen this, where we are managing people's feelings in passivity and complying as much as we are managing tasks, as much as we are managing people, business lines, at managing, you know, the future of the work and resources and being more concerned. Yeah. And maybe this is what you mean is, so, you know, I've worked with some people pleasers in my day. And I think that they have a working hypothesis that if I'm passive, you know, I am smoothing things over and therefore I'm managing people's feelings, emotions, really. When in fact, that's not the case. It's a, it's kind of, it's an erroneous assumption because I do think as a leader, you're, you are in charge of your own little orbit of emotions, right? You're not, you know, you're not in charge of a responsible, you're responsible to people, but not for them. So I think that's a really important distinction, but you are responsible to them. And so 
it's, you know, back to this like leadership separate from life. It's sort of like emotions separate from workplace environment. And, you know, there's the famous line by the neuroscientist that says we are feeling beings that think, not thinking beings that feel. And so I think it's an interesting kind of hypothesis. And I get it. And I would say, you know, I think a lot of people pleasers are conflict avoidant. So there's a piece of owning to your, you know, what you were saying, Jen, like with leadership, oftentimes you're going to need to learn how to, you're going to have to navigate conflict and emotions and all the messiness of, of all of that. There's an element of this too, where, oh, Kim thought has the great radical candor quadrant, right? Yes. The four, the four, yeah. and that whole area where we have that, like that insincerity, that manipulative insincerity. And this is that piece too, where you're saying, you know, being um, responsible to folks. We think in some ways that being responsible to folks is not making them upset, not like making sure that everything is pleasant. And is that giving folks a sense of where they stand? Are we doing folks a favor in that way? The data suggests that, that we're no, not, right? Yes. And, that, and that, that actually the most ineffective you know, style is for folks to not know where they stand and, and what that does to not just their current experience, but even their future career experiences where we're, we're limiting folks because they're not aware of, of their performance or, you know, anywhere they might be experiencing gaps that we could help them and support them through some of these areas of fine tuning. You know, the other thing that's interesting about that is that this being pleasant, which by the way, very Northwest, very Northwest. If anyone would like to learn how to be passive aggressive, we are here for you as a quadrant <laughs> of our country. Like super, right? So I say it's a very Northwesty thing. And here's this leader who wants to bring out the best in their team, who cares. I mean, the people I work with, purpose-driven humans and leaders, they care deeply about the work. They care deeply about their team. And so here they are being pleasant as a way, but actually what you're saying is I don't trust I don't trust myself with you, and I don't trust that you're going to be able to manage, you're going to be able to handle it, whatever it may be in the moment, when in fact you feel the opposite about your team, right? And you want them to be capable, but you sort of rob them of the opportunity to continually strengthen those muscles when pleasant is the pervading vibe. Yeah, yeah. You have another juxtaposition. So I thought that the passive, passive and listening and sort of how to, how to navigate that. But you, you talk about reactive versus creative. Yeah. And I have thought about those as versus. Yeah. So one being reactive. So our re- reactive tendencies, those being the skills that we lean on or the ways that we behave or the tendencies that we have as leaders. And there are ways that are depleting. Right? There are ways that we behave that while we think they're going to get us to a destination, they can often you know, really work against what we really intend them to do. Right? I think about like drive and ambition a bit in this way where we can re- have really high drive and sometimes drive also comes with a bit of like a superhero cape where we think like we're going to do it all because we're the best person for every job. And while that, that drive certainly gets us far in many, many ways, it's not always the most collaborative. It's not always the most team building. It's not always the way that gets us to, I think, well, where a lot of folks want to be, which is that selfless leader who can build a team that goes with them and, and that goes you know, beyond what they're capable of. 
And so that being right, like the the selfless leader and some of these more relational skills being the creative, um, to your point, juxtaposition of something like control, right? We have to go so far from controlling to be somebody who's really relational and really collaborative. If we're so used to, to putting on that superhero cape on our own and doing it all ourselves and being the right person for every job wow, what a way for us to go to, to have us be that relational and that, that relational leader who can offer mm-hmm. team play, who can create caring and connection, who can build something that's so opposite to maybe what, what comes as like that baseline, more reactive thing that got us maybe real far in our early career. And, and we would like to transform to in our full leadership capability. But that's a trust ball for, oh, for gosh, leaders, yeah. right? Because you many, many high achievers have been rewarded for reactivity or proactive responsiveness, but like churn, you know, churning and burning and just like, you bet, I can get that grant out the door within like 72 seconds. You bet, you know, like saying yes. So, so then our subconscious mind has been trained to say, ah, but the reason you're safe, the reason you're safe is because you do so much. And I say this with great love and affection because I have walked this path and then decided that a different path might be more spacious and lovely. You know, walking the same path, but noticing the lovely things along the way. But there is, I just, you know, want a name for some listeners who may just be like intrigued by this. And I just want to say hi to your subconscious that's going to be like, oh, no, we're not doing that. No, that is going to backfire. But you don't know until you try it. And the transition is for most very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. I was listening to, oh gosh, I forget her name, but she just wrote a book called Needy, which I'm kind of obsessed with this idea, right? Yeah. And it's like, we're not trained, especially women. I know you work with a lot of women leaders as as I do. We're not trained really to like, there's a difference between being able to identify and state what you need and being needy, but we conflate those, right? So this book is dedicated to, actually, it's super healthy to be able to identify and state what you need. Um, and she, in this, in this interview, made this comment that your self-care needs to be proportionate to your ambition. And so I want to come full circle back to this idea of self-kindness and self-compassion and just hear your, your comments on that idea of self-care being proportionate to ambition. This is one of those areas where in part of the research that I have a lot of my coaching based on, one of the areas that we talk about often is composure and balance. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think self-care is not the light, fluffy version, but truly being able to be in a place where we experience the balance of, not the tightrope version of balance, Mm -hmm. right? The part Mm -hmm. where like, we get on the tightrope, we fall back off, we get back on, this wasn't perfect, I'm going to do it anyway, right? And and really have a way of setting boundaries that are an everyday reflection of self-care, right? So... And for those folks, I mean, you're talking about, when you're talking about ambition, I think about like foot on the gas pedal, mm-hmm. right? That like, you know, foot on the gas of like a Lamborghini engine, bicycle brakes kind of feel. That, that was great. That feels familiar. Is it, is it familiar? I, <laughs> I resemble that <laughs> remark. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I get it. I get it. But it's when we're in that position. Okay. So if we're going to run with a Lamborghini engine, what does our maintenance look like? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's different than for my 2004 MDX that has 200,000 miles on it. Right. Right. And so what does that look like? If that's what you, if you want to be high performance, right? If you want to be in this role where we're achieving at that level, then, then how are we going to provide maintenance? How are we going to provide all the inputs in 
to continue to do that at that level. I have a client, a client story about this where I worked with an individual, like I think probably, you know, you, you as well, really data oriented mm-hmm. and used like a habit tracker, right? Like yes, used, okay. I have like 55 things that I'd like to do every day to make life perfect and hit all of my goals. You, you're nodding. It sounds, I, you know, yes, agreed. Been there. I'm raising my hand. In our work together, one of the things that we started to figure out is that it wasn't that we needed to check every box in the habit tracker to make it all okay. It was, what are we going to do when we don't hit the numbers that we hope to achieve on the habit tracker? Or what if we put the habit tracker away and really tune into what's happening in life? How do I feel? What's stressing me out at the moment? Is the habit tracker causing me more depletion? Is it more reactive and perfection-based than it is things that are adding to how I feel? And when I don't hit the thing, whatever it is, if I didn't meditate and I didn't X, X, Y, 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 all the things, then am I beating myself up? And am I coming down on myself? Especially if it's daily. That's that's tough, you know? Yeah. I think having a, maybe, you know, a longer time horizon, like in a given week, in a given month, in a given year, what are the what are the things that are so much? If I want to feel better, then what is actually helping me feel better? And really identifying that. Because if it's one or two things, let's lean in and let's have that be the thing that we attempt to do our best to check off the list every day, right? Let's really find the things that are meaningful and impactful. And if the real check mark is I want to spend time with my family, then let's put our phone down and focus on what's really important, which is none of these things that we're talking about anyway, which I think for a lot of folks is really is what we end up talking about at different times. Yeah, I have all these big goals. And one of the biggest is I want to be with people I care about or I'd like to shut down my laptop. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have two teenagers and I I do. I'm like, like it's such a thing, the screenager, you know, where they're, and, and I try to be mindful, like they're on their phones, but then they're talking about what they're looking at on their phone. And so it is a different dynamic, but I think intergenerationally, just in general, like closing the laptop, putting the phone away, probably a good move. It's funny as I, you know, get older, I have to, if I want to stay as active as I'd like to be, which is pretty darn active, my my body has served me well, but my knees are like, mm, we're not going to be doing all those things. And we're especially not, Erica, if you don't do your PT. So it's really like I had, I, I just have to continually remind myself, like, this is an act of self-love. Like things like meal prep, I like do meal planning and meal prep because for me, that's love. Opening my fridge and knowing that me and my family have a whole docket of great food, but it's the come from energy, right? So there's a past version where that was like, well, you got to take off the box, like, you know, this daily habit tracker thing. And now I literally open and I'm like, golly, that's loving. Look at that. Look at all that healthy, yummy food. Fabulous. Some of it is the action, but I think in equal measure like really being attentive to the mindset or the come from energy of the action so that you can get this sense of like, is that really filling my cup or is it, or do I just feel like I have to put that in my cup, but I don't actually want that in my cup. You know, people like meditating. I know a bunch of people are like, I'm never going to do it. That's just not my jam. I'm like, cool, don't do it. Do something else. Yeah. The thing about PT. Sorry, physical therapy. Physical therapy, thank you. Well. Yes. Is one of those areas where it's so... It, to your point, micro action <laughs> that we're like, how can this be doing anything, right? I totally get what people think that about meditation. I just have to sit here and breathe. This isn't doing anything. How's this going to help my problems, right? Like that's where my mind, like my little resistance mind of like PT, that's not hard. 
you're just making me breathe or, and I have to like put my legs at a weird angle and it's uncomfortable and I feel like a dork. Totally. Speaking for myself. Yes. No, same, 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 same. And, and, and it's that, right? There's, there's also, that's a, that to your point is such a version of self-care and it's not super immediate. There's not a gratification. There's not like a, well, so, so the other day I, I live on a hill and I catch the bus to the bottom of the hill and I had like been on a good streak with my PT. And so I'm running downhill, which if I don't do it, my knee is going to be talking to me. <laughs> I was running down the hill because it felt great. And I was like, this is why we do PT. This feels good. You know, I totally. like reinforce that it's worth it. It was kind of sure that there were a couple of people who were like, oh my, what is happening with the lady who was chalking down the hill, talking to herself, where it wasn't my best look, but I felt like it was important to acknowledge, like, this is this is why I do it, because if I don't, it's it's grim. I love that. I love that. And I have the same. I have a PT who legitimately high-fives me when my calf length got to normal. Would She's like, <laughs> you don't have the tightest calves I've ever seen. And that was a huge celebration for me. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm high five and you yeah. done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Erica. I needed that today. <laughs> Jen, anything else that you want to share with listeners that we haven't covered yet? If there is a thing that you can do for yourself to take care of your mental health and it hasn't made it to the top of your list this week yet, try and put it on your calendar somewhere. It's mental health month. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's have this be the start of the way that you put that on your calendar. Because uh, what gets in our calendar from what I've seen gets done. So let's try to do that for ourselves. And if you haven't, hey, it's no biggie. No biggie. And uh, you can start or either way, you're doing your best. I know that to be true. Even even if it's, you know, what's available to you is putting your hand on your heart and take a one deep breath. That can be a, a jump start to self-care. Community. Yeah. Jen, thank you so much for taking time to share all your insights and wisdom with listeners and for doing the good work that you're doing. I, I, I appreciate you saying no more shame around mental health. That's, a, that's an act of courage still to this day. So I really appreciate you for that. Listeners, you heard, you heard Jen say it, and I'm going to double down. If there isn't something on your calendar, a way to prioritize your mental health, look, Let's see what you might be able to rustle up this week um, because you deserve it. I think that's all we have for this episode. So I will part ways uh, by saying do good, be well, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Communicate for Good podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would right here, right now, go rate and review the podcast. Your review will help even more purpose-driven leaders, teams, and organizations learn how to use words to change the world. To find more ways that communication can help you increase awareness, revenue, and impact, head on over to www.claxon.communicationnos.com.